0: Hello and welcome to the True Wealth Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tools to help you build true wealth. And it's more than just about the money. It's achieving the personal and professional and financial goals that attracted you to a career in medicine. I'm Dr. Vicki Rackner, your host. I call on my experience as a practicing surgeon and two decades of entrepreneurship to help you look into your blind spots and see around corners and take the accelerated path to where you'd like to go. Well, I was once interviewed and at the end of the interview, I was asked if you only have one sentence to communicate your most impactful message, what would that be? And in this podcast episode, I'd like to share that. Before we do though, they say that your message is in the mess. So I'd like to begin by inviting you into this mess that has to do with my son and he's given me permission to tell his story. My son was recently diagnosed with OCD and we're not talking about quirky behavior like lining up pencils or organizing his sock drawer by colors. We're talking about true clinical OCD. Looking back, his symptoms probably started in high school but I just hadn't put that together. I noticed some things when he went to college. So I remember getting a call from him. He had gotten his midterm back and he said, the professor scored my exam wrong, what do I do? I said, that's easy. Just make an appointment with your professor, go in and ask him to explain why you lost points. He said, no, no, that's not the problem. The problem is I think he gave me too many points. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, just what you said. And there was a part of me that thought, yes, yes, he is getting these values of honesty and integrity. And then I would get other kinds of calls about similar things. He was afraid that he had inadvertently caused harm. Once he called me and offered me an apology for not contributing around the house more, But the thing that finally caught my attention was the day that he told me that he avoids a certain bridge on campus because every time he goes over the bridge, he has an urge to jump off. Well, after I satisfied myself that he was not suicidal, I sent him in for a complete neuropsych evaluation. And that is when he came to be diagnosed with OCD. Now, for those of you for whom your cyprotation is a distant past, let me just remind you of the pathophysiology. So OCD is a condition in which part of the brain miswires, and in so doing, offers unpleasant, unwanted thoughts that feel real, and they all sort of feel like life and death. So some obsessions are about contamination, some are about numbers, some are about you know feeling just right. My son has moral OCD so his intrusive thoughts challenge his self-worth. It brings to question whether he is a good person. These thoughts lead to anxiety and sometimes it's 10 out of 10 anxiety. And the way that people deal with this anxiety is engaging in compulsions, in actions. Maybe it's hand-washing. Maybe it's buttoning up a shirt 10 times before it feels right. For my son and his moral OCD, it takes the form of confessions and apologies. And once he does those things, it brings the anxiety back down to baseline. So the more cycles he goes through, the more he grows the OCD. Now, when he was diagnosed, he said, okay, well, how do we just make the thoughts go away? And unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. Efforts to resist the thoughts or to resist the anxiety just grows OCD. So the therapeutic goal is to take the bite out of these thoughts, and the bite out of the anxiety while resisting the compulsion. The most effective evidence-based treatment is something called ERP. It's where within the context of a therapeutic relationship, the therapist offers the stimulus for the obsessive thought. This then triggers the anxiety. The therapist asks you on a scale of one to 10, what's your level of anxiety? They will say, And then ahead of time, they've agreed not to go through with the compulsive act. And the reason that this is important is that the anxiety will go away on its own. Going through these cycles in which you see that these are just false alarms, that's going to shrink the OCD. All right, so right now, here's the way things go with my son. He'll call me up. And he'll say, okay, this is what's going on. Sometimes he'll say, you know, I think this is OCD. What do you think? And the way we've described it is like he has a part of his brain we call his OCD terrorist, right? It hijacks the brain and takes over the thinking and feeling and doing process. So when he recognizes that this is obsessive thinking, he'll often check in with me first. And I'll say, you're right. You're right. And then what he says, okay, this is not me. It's the OCD. And so there's a pathway that he goes down if he has these OCD thoughts. Well, sometimes maybe three quarters of his brain thinks, yeah, this is probably compulsive, but there's a part of his brain that doesn't really believe it. Because remember, the OCD terrorist has access to the working of his thinking. And so the OCD can often like disguise the message so it feels real. So if my son only three quarters believes that it's obsessive, he'll try to argue with me. And we've already agreed that I can say ahead of time, not negotiating with terrorists. So you ask me if I think this is OCD, my answer is yes, but you get to decide what your next steps are. The real problematic phone calls are those in which my son calls me. He's in the midst of something that I know is OCD because when he's there, I can feel it in the pit of my stomach, but he doesn't recognize he's there. It's kind of like watching somebody have a nightmare. You want to wake him up. You want to say it's okay, but it's really hard to get him out. And what he's told me is that the most effective thing is for me to just stay calm. So the number one tip that I offered on this radio show is recruit your mind to manage your brain. It's going through this entire process that my son and I go through. It's recognizing that your brain is going to offer thoughts all of the time. Some of your thoughts are going to help you get to where you want to go, but some are not. Every thought creates a feeling, just like my son's OCD thought causes anxiety. That feeling inspires action. So for my son, it's the compulsion. So you might be pushing back and thinking, whoa, in entrepreneurship, there are so many things that I need to learn please tell me how to price my product or to decide whether there's really a market. I get it. And I really do believe that managing your mind is the core skill. So let me give you a couple of examples. When I decided to exchange my scalpel for a microphone and for a pen, I loved my life. I loved the message that I was delivering and I woke up every morning thinking, I hate selling. Well, if I am telling myself all day, every day, I hate selling, you can imagine what kind of sales I got. I remember sharing this conundrum with a fellow speaker at the National Speakers Association, and he said, hey, have you seen Schindler's list? I said, yeah. And he said, remember the scene at the end when Schindler gets in front of all the Jews that he had saved and announces to them that the camps had been liberated and they were now free. The Jews had presented him with two gifts, and he had an emotional meltdown. And he said, I could have done so much more. I wasted so much money. I could have done more. My friend, the speaker, said to me, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think I could have done so much more. I know that I make a difference in people's lives. And unless I'm willing to go out there and let people know how I help them, I'm going to miss people. So I said, oh, so you mean selling is serving? And he said, exactly. And that became the new thought that I carried with me all the time. And my bank account reflected that new thought. So I hired a mentor who was coaching me to take on bigger kinds of things. So I remember trying to sell a six-figure consulting project. I'd identified the buyer, I'd learned what the buyer wanted and needed. I created a proposal and I was scheduled to meet with her and get her to say yes. So I arrived early, I sat in the waiting room and she was late. And instead of inviting me back to her office, she just sat herself down on the couch, said, sorry, I'm late, this has been one of those days. I got your proposal, I read it. This part right here, could you please expand on that? Listen, sorry, I gotta go. I left. The waiting room went and punched the elevator button and had the thought, this was her way of saying no. She wasn't interested. She didn't want the drama of just saying, sorry, I'm not interested. So this was it. And as the elevator went down to the ground floor, I could just feel this heaviness in my heart. I felt despair. I felt like, you know, why even bother? I should just quit. And then I even got angry at those people who had supported me and told me, no, you can do this, keep on going. I got home and basically just sat on the couch and didn't do anything except decide this is enough for me. Well, the next day I had a scheduled call with my mentor. And he said hey how'd that meeting go did you close it and i said no i lost the deal and he said whoa, whoa whoa wait a minute if there were a video camera running for that meeting tell me what the video camera captured and so i told him what had happened without any interpretation and he said i totally disagree with your assessment look here are the three buying signals she's gonna sign this contract, you're gonna move forward. Suddenly, it was like the clouds parted and the sunshine came through. The thought that she had already decided to say no led to feelings, feelings of despair, of hopelessness, and action, like not revising the proposal. But the different thought offered by my mentor, you're still in the game led to a more hopeful, optimistic feeling, which then led to the action of revising the proposal. And I went on to close that contract. It wasn't a six-figure contract. It was only a five-figure contract, but I did it, And that one success led to others. So yes, I needed to learn how to identify the buyers. I needed to be able to put together a proposal, but without the right Thoughts that are leading to the right feelings that lead to the right actions, it's difficult to get the results that you want. So, let me walk you through a five step process for managing your brain. Now, if you like baseball metaphors, this one is for you. Imagine that there are different parts of your brain that are sort of like the players on a baseball team. So they all have specialized jobs and they don't switch around positions. So too, there are different parts of your brain that will offer you different messages. Everyone wants to have a winning team, right? And the performers of the individual players matters. But the thing that makes the most impact is are the managers and the coaches. And the coaches and managers are there to collect a winning team and to put the right people in the right positions in the right order. So there are more wins. So how does this generally look? Well, generally a scout goes out and identifies a player with a lot of promise. And one scout identified a player by the name of Billy Bean. He looked like he had great potential. He went through three teams and the potential was never realized. So he was promoted to management and he was the general manager of the Oakland Athletics in 2001. He did really great the first half of the season, not so great the second half of the season, but they got a great outcome. But then they lost three key players. How would he fill these three spots in the roster with his very limited budget? Well, this story is told in both the movie and the book Moneyball, but let me tell you some of the highlights. Billy Bean was out on his own recruiting trip when he ran into somebody with a very interesting idea. Instead of taking a look at players and getting hunches about whether or not they were a good investment, he recommended that players be chosen on the basis of the numbers. It was like evidence-based baseball or evidence-based ball his colleagues thought he was nuts this is not how things have been done this is a crazy idea it's just not gonna work and the beginning of the season was not great but he believed in this idea of using objective evidence to intentionally make the kinds of good choices that are going to give great results and 2002 wound up being a great year for the A's. I invite you to think about your mind like the Billy Bean managing your life. So how do you manage your mind so that you get more wins in your career, in your relationships and in your finances? So I like to lay out a process that might feel uncomfortable unfamiliar and new. I invite you to just suspend disbelief and take a listen to what it's about. All right. So step number one is witness your thoughts. So imagine projecting yourself to a corner of the room, just watching and hearing the thoughts that go through your brain. Now, all of these thoughts are going to feel real, and they might even contradict each other. But I'm here to say that the thought that you choose will either move you closer to true wealth, closer to the life that you want, or further away. So just witness that. Even if you don't have OCD, you have a human brain. And we know that human brains make predictable mistakes are actually biologically based. For example, you might know some people who are natural born spenders or natural born savers. They just seem to come out of the womb that way. And in fact, it looks like that might be hardwired in the brain, in the nucleus accumbens. Our brains make predictable mistakes. So five economists have won Nobel prizes for the field of behavioral finance, understanding how and why smart investors make dumb investing choices. So we know that there are some predictable problems with the brain. Okay. Step number two is ask yourself, which thought am I going to swipe right on and which thought am I going to swipe left on? So with my son, the thought comes from his OCD terrace. it's swipe left. Nonsense. I'm just not going to listen. If it comes from a healthy part of his brain, then swipe right. You might not have OCD, but you might have a part of yourself that functions like OCD. Maybe it's the part of you who suffers from the imposter syndrome. Maybe it's the part of you who's limited by your perfectionism or by your people pleasing tendencies. So my son would look at his thought and if it was OCD, he would say, that's not me, that's the OCD. And once you come to recognize the thoughts that are generated by the parts of you that aren't helping you get to where you want to go, maybe you would adopt that. That's not me, that's my people pleaser. That's not me. That's my perfectionist. And swipe left on it. You don't have to believe everything that your brain tells you. Your brain will lie to you. Step number three is invest in emotional regulation, in your ability to identify and manage your feelings. So remember, every thought creates a feeling. If you choose a healthy thought, it's gonna help you get to where you want to go, you still may experience an unpleasant feeling. If you decide that you're gonna try something new, you could have the feeling of fear come up. I don't wanna lose, I don't wanna fail. However, what my son has taught me is that you can move through any feeling you can lean into unpleasant feelings to take the action that's going to help you get those wins the best way to get over it is just to go right through it next i invite you to take a look at the stories you tell yourself and others that explain how and why You are experiencing the world in the way that you do. So, for example, when I first started speaking, the story I told myself was that I get nervous before every talk I deliver. You know, I was afraid about what if I forget a part of it? What if somebody asks a question that I couldn't answer? And I was all nerves before I went on stage. But then Somebody replaced this with a different thought. They said, look, you're looking at this all wrong. You're thinking that this presentation is about you. Why don't you just shift that a little so that you put the audience at the center? This is about them. They're not going to know whether you forgot a part of the speech. They'll probably have more respect for you if you say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Put them first. Think about yourself as a vessel to offer other people things that are gonna help them get what they want. And you know that sensation that you are describing as nerves? Just reframe that. Say, this is excitement. And once I made the shift in those stories, both by substituting thoughts and reframing the feelings, I approach speaking with a new level of enthusiasm. So what stories are you telling yourself about your experiences? Because you've had past experiences. You've had successes. You've had unwanted outcomes. Some people call them failures. I just think of them as uh, data collecting. What story are you telling yourself about it? And are those stories helping you move closer to where you want to get to? Let's take a look at some stories that might come up for me around my son's diagnosis of OCD. So, you know, a video camera would capture The facts, that my son had OCD symptoms and his physician mother didn't recognize that he had OCD for years and years. All right, the story I could tell myself is I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad doctor. And you know, that might be true, you could argue that. But how's that gonna help anyone, right? I could retell the story that OCD is tough to diagnose. Who'd ever heard of moral OCD? And maybe by the process of just telling my story, it will help other people. Imagine if my fairy godmother popped right in front of me and said, you know, I can wave my magic wand and OCD will be completely eliminated from your life. Do you want me to do that? There's a part of me that would say, yes, heck yes, do it, do it. Because there's a part of me that thinks that OCD is the worst thing that ever happened to my son. But who does that story serve? I could take another stance. I could say, well, OCD is the best thing that's ever happened to my son. But when I offer that thought to my mind, That doesn't feel believable. I mean, my mind is going to reject that thought. But when I say there have been some real gifts from OCD, now I've come upon a thought that's actually going to do some good. The reality is through this process, we have identified a quality of my son that can either be his greatest strength, or his greatest barrier, which is his persistence. I've seen lots of ways in which his persistence has served him. He decided to start wrestling in middle school. He was really excited about it. He lost virtually every match in his first year, but he just kept at it. And through his hard work, he ultimately made it to the state championship. So I'm delighted he has this perseverance. OCD is sort of this perseverance that's kind of gone wrong. But here is the greatest gift of OCD. He has real life experience with this idea that he doesn't have to believe every thought that his brain offers, that he can choose his thoughts strategically, that thoughts will create Feelings, and he can live through feelings that are terrible. And I believe that this process, the process of recruiting your mind to manage your brain, just like Billy Bean built a team based on the numbers, this is going to serve you. This is going to help you succeed as an entrepreneur. This is gonna help you develop better relationships. This is going to help you achieve your financial outcomes. And he is learning that in his 20s. It took me a long time to come to this realization. And I hope that you can see the value of the lessons that he's brought home to me. So thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Please feel welcome to put comments below. Please feel welcome to subscribe and send me any questions that you might have. Thanks again. See you in the next episode.